And now, The Low Post. Welcome to a very special edition of The Low Post Podcast. We have not one eagle, but two eagles. There are a lot of unpleasant stories we have to talk about in sports now and then that take you away from the fun of the game. This is one of the most joyous that I can remember doing on this podcast, and I somehow roped you both into doing it. And the reason that I roped you both into doing it is because the Brooklyn Nets, let's forget all the basketball stuff that has happened to the Brooklyn Nets nigh these last 25 to 30 years. They have come to the wise decision to pair for 10 games, I believe. Their longtime has won every goddamn award in the business, play-by-play legend Ian Eagle, with his son, formerly of the Clippers radio broadcast, formerly of every Syracuse broadcast that there is at that (laughs) university that just pumps out talent after talent after talent. Currently, you just flip on your TV on a Saturday for whatever college football game is on, and there he is, Noah Eagle. We have father and son on the same low post podcast. It is truly an honor. How are you guys doing today? Double bird, Zach. You booked the double bird. Flip the double bird right up. Yeah, is it an albatross? What do we call it? I, I think people have been been cooking some stuff up. I will say this is an honor for me, and I'm sure for for Papa Bird as well to to hear the welcome to, and then the, the <laughs> either pause or in between low post podcast live. That was big. So, um, you guys have have done have called the same game. At least two or three times I know of a college basketball yep. game. Obviously, Nets Clippers o- over the last few years. So that's a, almost a half dozen, maybe. Have you ever actually called the same game on the same broadcast? Is this going to be the first time that happens? Like mechanically for these ten games, how many of them are you actually going to be together? Because some <laughs> of this IN is designed for you to go to do the Final Four, right? Yeah. Zach, I don't know. Are you involved in the production at all? Because I believe the number is zero. As of right That's now. it. <laughs> I believe it's zero, but I don't know. You might have more information than than I do. No, I I think the the plan is for Noah to step in during March when I'm off doing the NCAA tournament and Ryan Rucco is doing the women's tournament, and that's where Noah's probably going to stockpile a number of games in March. Although I think he's got one early December, correct? Yeah, December second. First one should be at Barclays Center with the. The young up-and-coming Orlando Magic coming to town, which will be fun. Well, this isn't good. This is disappointing. <laughs> this is right off the bat. I'm. How are we not going to have one game? What oh, What would that look like, Zach? How How would that work? We would just have two play-by-play guys dueling. One would do the first quarter. The other would do the second quarter. And then we would just come together in the fourth quarter and and make a call after call after call. No analyst whatsoever. You just pitched the idea. That's how it would work. You just, you <laughs> you just know what? made actually, the pitch. It, it's kind of like, it's almost like the N one mix tour. It's whoever can come up <laughs> with the most style points is going to find a way to win with a fan base. So I, That's I the show. That's yeah. the show. That's it. Look, That's this it. is a franchise that once went 12 and 70 yep. that mm-hmm. had uh, in the Wobegon Arena in Newark had a mascot called Sly Fox that was a fox with sunglasses on. That yep. just like it, they've they 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 almost became known as the Swamp Dragons. Very um, close, Very which close. I would support them recycling in some sort of throwback mock-up jersey night. It would not be the most ridiculous thing the Nets franchise has done. Is all I'm saying. 
you may will this into existence. So the fact that you've put it into the universe, there's a there's a chance it may happen. But this is Frank this DeGrace's moment, call, right? This is Frank DeGrace that we're addressing right now. Uh, I mean, I think there are some other parties involved, but yeah, Frank would would be at the <laughs> core of it. Yes. Listen, Frank. <laughs> like give the people as Jalen Rose likes to say, give the people what they want. The people want Eagle times two on the broadcast. Um, I and so so wait so Noah like you've got so many gigs. I don't understand how there's college football. There's these Nets games. What else do we have going on? Yeah, college basketball. Basically, whatever else NBC is going to need for me and and some other stuff that that I, I'm sure will be more public in the in the future. But I like to keep things close to the to the chest here, close to the vest. I don't know what est it is, but if it's vest or chest, I keep it close either way. Where do you? Where are you? Where do you live now? Los where Angeles, are you, still? Noah? Yeah, I, that, listen, I'm everywhere all at once. No, I'm I'm in New York, in Manhattan. I've moved back east. I'm really? Back in the, I, yeah, it's shocking, right? I know. I didn't Did even not tell, know this. Didn't even tell my family. It's a complete <laughs> surprise. It's just a pop in. Hey, hey, what's up? How's everyone doing? No, it's been good. It's been good to be back. Good to feel the vibes. Good to good to see everybody. So I don't necessarily follow the ins and outs of broadcasting as much as I follow the ins and outs of the NBA. So we are in the NBA offseason, which means although there is no real offseason, I do have the freedom sometimes to watch sports and socialize like a normal person. And a couple of weeks. Yeah, I know. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a bunch of neighborhood loser dads got together for a neighborhood (laughs) loser dad Saturday where there was a couple beverages and children were doing God knows what elsewhere in the house. So I said, hey, I think. Notre Dame's playing Ohio State today, or whatever Notre Dame's are flipping on. Like, God, there's Noah Eagle, the biggest game of the year <laughs> in college football. Noah Eagle is on the call, just talking into the microphone, telling me what to expect during the game, pitching it over to the color analyst. I can't remember who it was. Ian, you've been asked the version of this question a million times. It becomes a more profound question every year. Sure. It's going to become more profound when he's literally going to be sitting in your chair, your chair. For ten games, probably going to adjust the chair to a height that you don't like. Like when the, when the, when someone gets in your car yeah. and adjusts the seat, and you're like, "What happened? Yeah. I can't reach the steering wheel." Um, I guess when you turn on the Nets game and you hear, like, you'll I assume make an effort to watch those games that even even on DVR. Sure. What is that going to be like for you? That's your team. That's your gig. Mm. You've done it for more than a quarter of a century. How cool is that going to be? Yeah, it's like someone going into your car and changing your presets. They're just borrowing your car, and then all of a sudden. You've got different radio stations up there. It's going to be amazing and just a full circle experience. I I think about my wife, Elisa. We've been married now since 1993. So we're talking about a 30-year marriage. And she was, I don't want to say forced, because that's, that's strong. That makes it feel like she was in captive in some way. She listened to and watched a lot of Nets games over the course of her life, more than any person that signed up for marriage would have thought that would happen. And the idea now that it's continuing in some way for her to watch Noah do it just blows me away. Um, The team has meant a lot to our family. And just on a personal level, I think Noah grew up as a sports fan in that setting, it was really the Nets that that brought the the love and and the passion for the NBA and for sports in general. So 
It's pretty wild. You know, I started doing Nets games in 1994, two years before Noah was born. And the thought that he would somehow be involved with this franchise is, is hard to wrap your brain around. Noah, like when you sit, when you sit in that chair, 1994, we're talking like Derek Coleman, the end of the Derek Coleman era, the beginning of the Stefan Marbury era, the uh, a lot of eras that didn't really go very far. And then you got to Jason Kidd. You got to Jason Kidd mini era. But like when this opportunity, you had a you had a great gig going with the Clippers with with a with runway in front of you to be in one of the biggest media markets in the world for a team that is open in a new arena, bottomless pockets, all that. Like how did this opportunity get presented to you, and why did you decide? Given that you've talked a lot about, um facing the scrutiny you will get with your last name and, and how people are going to say, well, you know, how did you get in the door and blah, blah, blah. How did you decide, you know what? I, I will do it. I will take, I will sit in that seat and mess with the presets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I would say that as my dad hit on a little bit, first of all, shout out to my mom for not just listening and watching all the Nets games, but the last four years she's double dipping where she'll watch the Nets game at seven Eastern And then at 10 Eastern, she's turning on the radio to listen to the Clipper game. And so she was entrenched. Landry Shamit had to be just very high on her list. It was a (laughs) lot of Landry Shamit for like a two and a half year stretch. Yeah, yeah, I I think that for me, growing up around the team, you know, going to all those games, a lot of the teams you just mentioned, Stephon Marbury, I've got a picture, I think, somewhere of, of me and him on the court when he's stretching and I'm trying to bother him at like two, three years old, however old I was. And then shooting in the basket after some of those NBA finals games and Brian Scalabrini or Todd McCullough having to get the ball from the net because it got stuck. And it was a tiny little ball that got stuck in the intricacies of the net, you know, things like that. Those are the memories that, as my dad said, created my sports fandom. And so I understand all the, the, the broadcast side and, you know, the, the last name side and all that type of stuff is there, but from my own sports fandom and my own passion for the game, to have that now come full circle with the team that that concocted that for me, that's special. And it's an opportunity that I never really knew if that was going to present itself. I never knew if the timing and the circumstance was going to work. And quite honestly, I loved being with the Clippers for four years. I loved doing it. I would have done it forever if the circumstance was right. And I think when the NBC thing came my way, it just it, it wasn't going to work timing wise. And I didn't think that was fair to the organization more than anything. They deserved all of my attention. They deserved me being 100% in, and I just wasn't going to give it. So to have a 10-game package as opposed to trying to do the full 82, I thought that just made a little bit more sense for me. And to do it on the East Coast and do it with this team was just a bonus on top. Ironically, Ian, in prepping for this, I was just Googling around. I didn't know Lawrence Frank tried to get you relatively recently to leave the Nets and come to the Clippers. You couldn't do it because you were under contract and, and probably wouldn't have done it anyway. But I didn't know that. Like he, he called. I mean, obviously, he's a former Net long time. Yeah coach executive everything um i didn't know that if if you had not been under contract would that have been at all enticing uh probably not uh, i'm <laughs> i'm more of a new york guy than an la guy lawrence is is uh, a friend and obviously someone i respect and by the way zach coined the term rack attack yeah i had never used that call until he said it in one of our pregame interviews and then Frank DeGrace and I were like, man, that's pretty good. And then I used it that night and Frank liked it. And then I started using it more and more. I'm not even sure Lawrence knows that he coined that term. He just said it. I told him. 
Oh, yeah, you told, I told him. him. And then and then he got upset. He goes, good to know I was a better broadcaster than coach. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, you, look, not to divulge too much Clippers information, but Noah, you spent several seasons sitting on Radio Row in the Clippers arena, crypto, now crypto.com. Yeah. Radio Row and crypto.com is my favorite seat. There are not a lot of press seats there. Lawrence Frank and, and some of his cohort sit on Radio Row and watch oh, yeah. the games. And let, me, and let me tell you, they are lucky it is not mic'd up for the world to hear what's going on on that on Radio Row. Well, you get you get the seat right next to them too, which is perfect. I'm surprised you haven't been hit by an errant elbow at some point because everybody gets to see Steve Ballmer and his passion. What makes the organization so great is that the front office, the coaching staff, they all share that passion. And I've seen you get dangerously close to getting physical on Radio Row for sure. So you. Uh, you guys have both talked about how Noah got to grow up going to sitting. It sounds like right yeah. next to you, behind you at yes. games. You you've joked about how the Nets were so bad at times that you could hear fans talking about their vacation plans fifteen rows up, and you would give them True. advice during yep. commercials. Noah was probably there for that. So obviously, watching you was formative for Noah and how how to the seriousness with which you approach the craft and all this. But I, I I don't I don't recall seeing this asked of you know in a lot of prior interviews I read, who were some of your other broadcast sort of heroes? Some people that you know some some people have a voice or a cadence that whether it's radio or TV just just hits you a certain way that you like. Who are some of those other people? Yeah, I think that especially as I grew older and I got more and more into the craft itself, that's when I started to develop different styles and different voices and, and accumulating that accumulating that for for my own kind of sanity and my own kind of uh agenda so to speak moving forward but my dad was always number one on the list just you know watching net games every day and and watching nfl games and all the other stuff ncaa tournament it was ingrained in me and it was osmosis being around him but my brain was very high certainly on the basketball side the command of the broadcast always stood out to me and how he was in control of everything. He could get his analysts involved. He could take you to break very confidently. And there was no there was no questioning his knowledge of the game. Everything was right there. I think Mike Tirico, who's now my teammate at NBC, also very high. And it was the versatility with him that always stood out. The fact that he could call a game at the highest level, but then could turn around and host a game at the highest level. And, and there's just not many guys that can do it quite like he can. And then as I've gone, as, as mentioned, as the years have gone, I think you keep adding more. So I love... Jason Benetti and Adam Amin. I think those guys do a wonderful job. Benetti, Benetti, who for people who don't know, I only know him when he when he fills in on play by play for yep. the Bulls. And I know Adam Amin because he's formerly a Spanish. He's the main play by play guy. Yep. Goes without saying, he's very good. I, I hadn't heard Jason Benetti until a couple of years ago when he started filling in, and he and now he does. He does Walt Walton's uh, podcast, doesn't he? Yep, he um, does. He is. Someone has got to pluck that dude and put him in a primetime seat. Like, that dude is really, really good. He's outstanding. He's outstanding. And he's one of the most intelligent people you'll ever be around. But he's not going to necessarily make sure that you know it. I think that's what makes him special. And when he's on the air, he's just so, so smart and meticulous about how he frames everything, how he weaves everything through. It's it's easy. It's an easy listen. And so that's... That's what you're trying to get to as a broadcaster. So you take bits and pieces. I love Dave Pash, too. I think Dave does really, really good work, especially at the NBA level. So there's a lot. I mean, Ryan Rucco, it's it's hard to just name one or two. I could go on and on because I love the profession. I love the craft. But those are certainly some names that always stand out. I and Obviously, a lot of the discussion is going to be about 
watching your son go into broadcasting, how proud you are of him. And you have yep. to at least pretend you're proud of him. You don't have to be. You, you <laughs> I'll just nod. Um, yeah. Um, just how yeah. impressed you are physically with how he turned out. All that. Yeah. Stuff. Very impressed physically. Very. How, yeah. <laughs> obviously the handsomeness, just the they handsomeness had- gene. I, I did. I did listen to an interview today where I and you talked about how you hadn't gotten enough credit over the last few years for nailing the uh, your look, which you described of as <laughs> a mix of John Oliver and McLovin from Superbad. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't accurate. heard a good Mc, I hadn't heard a good McLovin reference in, in quite some time. Chris Christopher Mince Mince Plus Mince. I've, Plus, he's a, he's yeah. had a lot of games. He's a big NBA fan. Him Huge. and uh, him and Huge what's his NBA name? Fan. I'm such an old man. Him and what's his name from that show he was on. Are at games together a lot. Yes, that guy. him. Um, yes, but did you did you ever? Was there ever a small part of you who saw Noah going into this business, knowing how competitive it is it is how how the odds of success are are very low? Was there ever a part of you that was like, I kind of you want to try like <laughs> like read some books about law school and and like did, did, was did, was there ever a part of you who wanted to like just gently introduce other career paths? I mean, first of all, for those watching on video, not listening, uh, this feels like some odd Snapchat filter of young and old. It's a <laughs> it's a weird setup here. Secondly, yes, uh, I think when Noah made the decision to do it, at that point, my wife and I were 100% behind him. But early on, before he ever thought about this, there were definitely times where I I pondered to myself, man, is this what my kid should be doing? Or is there a different path for him? Or uh, is there something else that's going to make him happy? The, the goal is happiness. You're, you're trying to achieve happiness in this world. So if this is what provides happiness, then you go for it. And my parents were so encouraging that there was no possible way I was going to be that person that would list off the 20 things as to why you shouldn't do something. I was going to be the one that was positive and supportive. And Elisa was the same way. You know, we we met in college, so it was not a case where I pulled a bait and switch with my future wife, where I was telling her one thing and I ended up doing some something completely different. Uh, so that required support and, and someone to be a really good teammate. And I think when you enter this field, uh, knowing, as you said, Zach, that there's no guarantee for success, you have to be good. You have to be really talented. And obviously things have to break a certain way. Uh, but I, I never thought once Noah truly had an interest in it, I never thought to myself, man, I, I got to steer him a different way. That that wouldn't be living up to my own edicts and philosophies of life. We're just going to rapid fire through a bunch of ra- random questions. Zach's list of random questions is over here. <laughs> I was reading a story. The annoying thing about reading stories about the two of you is that you have the same last name, and sometimes it's not 100% clear if they mm. go shorthand last name, which one they're referring to. I'm assuming this was Noah, but Ian could have been a late bloomer in this regard. <laughs> the person who's the subject of the story is, is older than Ian by enough that it could be Ian. Hmm. Mike Fratello, the czar, 
taught one of you how to parallel park. <laughs> and I need to know which one. And I need to know, did he ever telestrate parallel parking? <laughs> what is, is he in the passenger seat handing out like Costanza level driving analysis and criticism? Is he, is he mean? Did he mock you? I need the Mike Fratello doing parallel parking is like an NBA nerd version of SNL skit. So tell me, yeah. I need to know everything about it. It wasn't me. So let's get that out on the table. You already knew you're claiming you already were enough of an expert parallel parker. I'm that out. You didn't, you're okay. I'm out. I'm out yeah. on this. He yeah. might've been, he might've been critical of your parallel parking. That's, oh no, that's there's no doubt about that. I would drive yeah. him back from the Prudential center to his hotel in Newark. And the guy had many, many comments along the way in regards to driving, life, plans that he had that he thought I was going to be a part of, that I was not a part of. There are still, like, you go to NBA cities and you're arranging dinner plans on an off night, or it could yeah. be any, it could be Cleveland, it could, where, where he was for a long time, but it could be anywhere. It could be San Antonio. And you'll still hear now and then, like, yeah, there's this restaurant that Mike Fratello supposedly re recommends. Like, we, and <laughs> yeah. like, how are any of us in this chain of lineage of Mike Fratello recommended restaurants? And yet there it is. Okay, Noah, please. Yeah, no, that's what makes him special. The, the parallel parking. So for those who don't know about, about the czar, when he was first starting out, he actually started out as a driver's ed instructor before he got catapult into the coaching ranks at the NBA level and beyond. And so... That's that's where his roots are, and he's got a very dry sense of humor. So I don't know. I must have been must have been about 15, 16. I was getting closer and closer to getting my license, and he pulled me aside and he said, uh, "Hey, uh, I don't have you considered what you're doing with your future?" And I said, "I don't know. I think I'm going to probably go into broadcasting." He goes, "Can I recommend being a driver's ed instructor?" I said. <laughs> No, you cannot. You absolutely cannot. He goes, all right, well, at least let me sit you down, show you the parallel parking method. And he used these salt and pepper shakers as the no, this, mirrors of th the this car. Is, this is not true. This is 100% true. My, yeah. you, were, you were there, were you not? I was. I, I blocked it out from my memory. I was so yeah. troubled by it. <laughs> yes. This happened. Salt and pepper shakers. He goes, okay, you turn on a 90-degree angle when you see the mirror, the mirror has to line up and he's telling me everything. I go, Mike, I don't think I can do this unless I'm in the car. He goes, no, you will remember this forever. And to your point, I have, in fact, yeah. remembered it forever. That that exceeded my expectations. I'm not, <laughs> not going to lie. Um, Noah has called a couple, several, I think, of the Nickelodeon alternate NFL broadcasts with the slime yep. and the slime cannons and just delightful stuff. Um, and I and I was reading... It might have been the first one he did. And the NFL is, you know, I don't need to tell both of you. You Now both of you have big football experience. The NFL, it's NFL and everything else. Like, it doesn't matter which broadcast of an NFL game you're on. It's the biggest thing on television. Yep. And so you were, you were watching the game, Ian, watching your son do this. And I, I read in an interview, or maybe it was a different, maybe it was a basketball game. I can't remember. Maybe it was listening to me on the Clippers radio broadcast. But you said something. And you were nervous. It was the first. It was the first Clippers game he did. That's what it was. And you yep. were nervous because it's his first game, and you're his dad. Yes. And and but you're also a broadcaster, so you know what's good and what's not good. And yep. you said something that that struck a chord with me. You said, um, "What it, what you were happy with was he's not behind the game. He's not yep. behind the play. He's on top of the action." And I think 
for anyone who has never tried to analyze and talk about or write about or think about a, a basketball game in real time, that is so much harder than it's not. The game is so fast. So my 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 question for you, Ian, would be: How quickly did you know that he was not behind the game? <clears throat> and was there ever for you starting in basketball an early game where you were like? Oh, oh crap! I'm I'm like hopelessly behind oh. the game, and like, what does that feel like? One hundred percent on the second part. I got the net radio job in 1994. I had not done a radio game since 1990, my senior year of college, the Big East tournament, NCAA tournament for Syracuse, and I grew as a broadcaster. I was working at WFAN Radio. I was definitely a more polished broadcaster, and I was ready for it, but I wasn't quite ready for the speed the first game out, and I was overwhelmed. We did a rehearsal game in Detroit, and it was 1994, me and Mike O'Corin, in Detroit, Nets-Pistons, Grant Hill's first game as a pro preseason. You could probably find this somewhere. Opening tip, it's tapped over to Grant Hill. He dunks seven seconds into the game, and I call it. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm on this. And then they brought it up the floor the other way, and I was not on it. I I definitely was not on it. I needed I needed to go back and hit the basics again. Fortunately, that did not air on actual radio, but they taped it. I listened back. I was like, all right, I've got to I got to hit the books here and start going through some of the the fundamental things that I, I did back at Syracuse, and I did. And as the season went on that year, I definitely got a lot better and I got used to the speed. And Noah used a great term earlier, it's command. You have to have command of what's happening in front of you. What I noticed with Noah very early on was he took a lot of pride in making sure he was on it and not back ending. You can back end play by play. And those that have been doing this a long time, you can pick and choose your spots if you don't notice something immediately, you can pause and wait and then get to it after the play actually happens. That's not the objective or the goal, but if you have to do it, it's there. I think Noah truly knew that he wanted to form good habits. And in doing so, I think it's carried it through now to all his other work because you judge yourself on that and you're going to be your toughest critic. And that's the interesting part, even with, with our relationship. I'm not someone that calls Noah or texts him after a broadcast with a laundry list of things that I noticed and you need to work on. We have that level of conversation occasionally. We have them, but it's not the way that you might think it would be. Uh, it's certainly not the great Santini, uh, great film with uh, Robert Duvall. So it's done in, in a way that's collaborative. And I think, I hope Noah has appreciated my approach with it. A little tip here, a reminder there, but nothing that's going to overwhelm him going into a broadcast. Uh, Noah, when you listen, when I listen to basketball on the radio, which is, which is rare, but sometimes I'll be on a long drive and I'll feel like listening to either like a March Madness game or whatever. It's so different than calling a game on TV because it's your yeah. job to describe like literally everything that's happening. Like he dribbles over to the right. It's so fast. 
how 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 quickly can you like it would seem like a completely different job and a completely different mindset how hard is it to toggle back and forth from one to the other yeah it's a challenge i actually and i think that my dad would agree i think that being on radio first helps it's easier to go from radio to tv because you're not adding you're subtracting it's much easier to subtract I think the best thing to happen to me because I was doing the Clippers by myself. So it wasn't even, it was, it was just me. It wasn't an analyst. So I had to be the play by play. I had to analyze when I saw something, I had to be a reporter when I had to report on something. It was everything. Did you ever, did you ever start debates with yourself just, just to liven up? <laughs> no, you're, oh, exactly. no, you idiot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would, I would talk to myself. That's literally what I would do. And I, I use the joke all the time, but people get labeled as crazy for talking to themselves. And I got paid. It was a great gig. I got to say, you know, oh, yeah. Sometimes I would mess up math. I'd, I'd get on myself. I'm like, ah, oh, Noah, that's why you do words. You don't math. You don't numbers. You do words. You know, little things like that. But as a result, I had to talk so much. I was used to being able to talk so much. I was used to being able to fill two and a half, three hours just by myself or fill long 20-minute reviews before a value absolutely crushed my spirit. So little things like that were good. Uh, they were good as a broadcaster to learn how to to handle myself, but then going to TV is, is is different. And so I think the best thing was that I got to do tennis for the last four years on TV because tennis is so minimalist. It's so little talking compared to what I was doing that now when I do basketball on TV, which I've gotten a chance to do a large handful of, of college games the last few years, mostly with Fox and FS1, that helped because it was finding almost the middle ground between my tennis and my basketball radio play-by-play, play. and that middle ground was pretty much the sweet spot. People always ask a broadcaster about their favorite calls, their favorite catchphrases, whatever. I and You and I have done that before. Yes. I, I'm more interested in, at times, the art of saying nothing. And so I will start with you, Ian. What stands out? I mean, you could talk about how, how to know when to say nothing and how to know when that's not appropriate, whatever. But sure. I, was there a moment you had in a game that you had where you remember – the choice of, you know what, I got to shut up now. And it really worked. And, and is there a moment in, in your career where you look back and say, I wish I should have shut up there. I shouldn't have talked. Yeah, no doubt. Early in my career, I just wanted to show people I knew what I was talking about. It was all about credibility. It was showing that I belong. It was showing that I did the work and I put in the prep time. So I got the net job. I was 25. I got the TV job the next year. I'm working with Bill Raftery. And I just wanted to be considered good at this. But my thought process back then was, well, I'm just going to show you. I'm going to show you how much I know. And it probably took about four or five years to figure out that was not the right philosophy. That eventually... Fans get used to your voice, get used to your style, get used to your approach. So there is an acceptance level. And with that acceptance, you can start to pick and choose your moments of you know coming in hot or stepping back. When you have a great scene, and this is translated to football as well, when you have a great scene and it's on television, you're in the way if you start trying to match those pictures with your words. Certainly if they're cutting around to fans, reaction, tight shots to players, that speaks for itself. 
And that's where I've learned, take a step back, lay out, which is a big TV term, and then be ready. Because when they either get back to the action or you need to put a period on something, you got to have the right word choice. And the way I've tried to view it, both football and basketball, is you're there as a TV announcer to pick out the most important thing in that play. And that is the process that you go through. And you don't get a second chance. You don't get a third chance. You get one chance. And sometimes you don't get it right. You pick the wrong thing. And the replay pops up and you look and say, man, I completely missed that. And that happens. We're human. But my success rate has been much higher just based on all the reps and figuring out what works, what doesn't. Watching back your stuff is really important and being self-critical and recognizing that you're always learning. You're not a finished product and you get judged by your last broadcast. That's how it is. That's how this business works. And by the way, that's how it should work. You know, just because I banked 25 years, 30 years, it doesn't matter. The last broadcast is how you're going to get judged. And you just hope that Richard Jefferson is not a part of it in that in that case, <laughs> if you're being judged on it. Well, you know it? but that also, that could be his last broadcast. That's the other <laughs> point. With Richard, there's a chance that it all implodes. All of it. Noah, what about the what about you and your and the the whole when when not to talk question? It's a good lesson that I think I'm still learning. I'm still learning the right. That was the, the you used the correct terminology. The right time and when it's not the right time, or or sometimes where you feel like it was the right time to shut up, and then you look back and you you realize, okay, maybe the scene wasn't as good as I anticipated it was going to be. And you you brought up the Notre Dame Ohio State game that I did. And by the way, I crush with the neighborhood loser dad. So I'm just glad to hear that my my rep is still there. <laughs> we are. We're, we're a bunch of losers. Like, I just I hope they're all listening to this. And some, now that they know me, they do listen sometimes. I got bad news for you guys. You're all a bunch of losers. That's your demo. It. That's I your demo. I hit it. I hit it every time. Uh, it, that game was the perfect example to me of Ohio State essentially wins on a walk-off touchdown. Nothing I can say after I make the call is going to be better than the pictures that you're seeing of the people with the surrender cobra in the in the stands or the two the quarterback on one side dejected the other quarterback jumping up like Dwayne Wade on the scores table there's nothing that I can say that's going to top that right but then there's also this sense and and my dad's been good about making sure to drill into my head a little bit of knowing when it's the home team that does something versus the road team because yep. a lot of times when it's the home team and the the euphoria and jubilation of that the crowd from that understanding versus when it's the road team, the stunned silence speaks and you have to let it speak, but it, it runs out a little quicker than yep. when you just allow that jubilation to, to go and, and kind of play itself out. So recognizing the moments is important. And I think I'm getting better with it. As he said, with the reps. I, and I'm sorry to do this to you. You said the magic words, Bill Raftery. <laughs> please do an impression of Bill Raftery <laughs> in any in any everyday setting that you could imagine teaching parallel parking ordering yeah. pizza uh, whatever you want please do the Bill Raftery for me yeah so this is very recent in fact last week Noah was at the Big Ten basketball media day in Minneapolis and he didn't know who he would see there's no sign up sheet you, you show up and whoever's there is there and lo and behold, who was there? America's guest, Bill Raftery. 
So what happens? I get a call the next day. Hey, Bird, I saw your kid. Man, he's got it going on. And like that just literally what he was saying to me. He walks in confident. Like Bill Raftery breaking down your son's existence is not something I ever would have predicted. So the fact that you know, Noah has known Bill literally his entire life. Bill tells a story anytime if there's some other people involved and Noah's there. Uh, we went to Bill's house. Noah, I don't know how old you were. I might have been five or six. I want to say I might have been slightly older because I think it was Kyle Korver's rookie year. I feel like Kyle Korver was in the sixth do you, do, do, you, do you mark a lot of events based on where Kyle Korver was in his 1, life. Like, I think this was yeah. Like, how Kyle, much did yeah. he look like? How much did he look like Ashton Kutcher when this happened? That's basically my life. Yeah. Kyle Korver, who the Nets traded for a copy machine. Copy story, machine. story. <laughs> yeah. Story told. Uh, anyway, true. please continue with the bill. The rap. So the basic premise was it that he had a pool table that was dormant. They did not use this pool table, but Noah seemed to be fascinated by the pool table. And to this day, Raph always brings up like we have Noah on the pool table he's checking the balls and I I have a memory of it but my memory of it is not as vivid as Bill's memory of it I think because no one ever used the pool table he was just thrilled somebody was using it even though they were using it in in the wrong fashion you do Cosell as well I read can you throw out a little Howard Cosell for us? Howard Cosell right there yeah, I I had a whole cadre of impressions back in the day. You know, I'm trying to work on new material, Zach. Does Noah have any? You have any impressions? I don't know if I'm ready to unleash them yet. I feel like they've got to come out a little bit more organically. But maybe I keep them surprised. I mean, we do an impression of of people that I would say are are less known to the public, but uh, <laughs> others others might know them a little bit better. Certainly around certain circles. Uh, yeah that that that's our stat guy dave freed who is mike Breen's stack guy in the nba and his son tyler who works with noah at nbc dave works with me on on nfl nobody would get this impression but zach i'm just telling you it may be the best impression in the world right now yeah Look, you, you, claim it claim it. it it's very simple it's a male edith bunker that's all you have to do it's <laughs> <laughs> good that's, <laughs> I mean that's evocative for someone of my age. Um, I the um, the production and ratings gods mandate that I must ask you, Travis Kelsey in the blank space call. Were yes. you did you go into the game hoping Travis Kelsey would score a touchdown, knowing I've got this in my back pocket? And also, it was like if you made that call this week, people would have rolled their eyes. Oh, it yeah. was just so new and fresh. Yeah. That everybody was excited about it. So, did, so take me the play-by-play of going like you had that in the bag. Were you like, were you hoping? Yeah, what I've absolutely recognized with things like this, where pop culture crosses over with sports, there is an audience for it. Uh, there are plenty of people that like sports and pop culture, and by the way, there are plenty of people that have no interest. In pop culture. So if you're littering every broadcast with a pop culture reference, there's a chance you're going to go over the head of people that are watching and you're losing a little bit of the core audience. So I try to pick and choose my spots. 
that one to me was gaining so much momentum that week. And the fact that Kelsey scored a touchdown, I thought to myself, let it rip, but not in a way that's so overt that it's obvious. Oh man. For those that weren't familiar with Taylor Swift, it was a reasonable call. Like I've never used blank space before ever describing a touchdown, but it worked. And ultimately I just did it straight. I didn't, didn't give the wink, wink like, Hey, by the way, I'm, I'm going for it here. It was weaved in part of the call, uh, back pocket. I, I don't know. I, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to throw it out there on just any normal play. Like to me, he had to score a touchdown. He had to do it in that manner and it had to fit in, in the moment. So I've decided somewhere along the way, Zach, to just trust my instincts and, and go for it as opposed to maybe earlier in my career where I'd pull back and I'd think seven steps ahead. Well, what, what if, what if it doesn't go over well? What if people hate it? People are going to hate me. I, I don't, I don't think that way anymore. I, I tend to to just go with my gut in a situation like this. And it looks like I'm again, speculation only. Looks like I I could get an invite to the wedding if it happens. It's just <laughs> it's not a plus one situation. So my wife will just have to sit this one out. Look, certain people in my social circle are convinced it's all a marketing fraud. And I really? just like when did you all become such cold-hearted uh cynics? Uh, uh, in in the world, and as as Dan, the producer, just noted, "Blank Space" is my favorite Taylor Swift song. Um, I dropped my daughter off at a birthday party this past weekend, where twelve eight year old girls, or soon to be nine year old girls, I guess, went and watched the two hour and fifty six minute Taylor Swift movie. And I dropped yeah. I dro- dropped off at the movie theater, and the dad of the birthday girl, who obviously has to stay, kind of plaintively asked me, "Hey, you know, um, you, you're welcome to." You're welcome to stick around <laughs> if you want. And I said, I think this is a leave your comrade on the battlefield situation, my man. Like, you're yeah. too far gone. I got I got to save myself on this. Not that I don't like Taylor Swift. I like Taylor Swift. Yeah. Um, just fine. Uh, let's talk about the Nets for a few minutes because you're both going to be analyzing the Nets. Either one of you. Let's let's start with youth. Let's let youth lead the day on this. Ready? What, Noah, is the most interesting thing about the Brooklyn Nets 2023-2024 to you? To me, it's still Ben Simmons, and it's to, it's we've seen him actually look like he's moving smoother through these first couple preseason games. I think that if they just get the Ben Simmons defensively of what he was in Philadelphia, don't even bother me with the offense yet. If they just get the defensive menace, the guy who I thought a couple of years ago, the year that eventually in the playoffs kind of fizzled out, but that season, I believe, I thought he easily could have won defensive player of the year in the NBA. Thought he was that good. He could guard one through five. He was picking up guys full court and menacing on that side of the of the basketball. I think that if they just get that, this team defensively is is scary. I mean, they've got switchability at pretty much every position with Bridges, with Johnson, with Finney Smith, with Royce O'Neal, with Claxton. I mean, we're talking about guys who can legitimately defend. And when you can legitimately defend, you're going to find yourself in games. And so the most intriguing and interesting part about them is still Simmons. And if he can be anywhere close to what he was, I think they have a chance to be pretty fun. So I didn't think – I was skeptical Ben Simmons would even start 
Because mm. if, if you look at the lineup they had to close the season, Dinwiddie, Bridges, Cam Johnson, Finney Smith, Claxton, it's a lineup that makes some sense. Um, mm. the, the Ben Simmons-Claxton combination, two total zeros as shooters, no, I mean, that they're just not what they do, has proven to be difficult to work with offensively. There's just not enough space on the floor. I kind of I, I looked at it. I was like, "Is this going to become a thing where Ben Simmons is coming off the bench and that becomes a source of tension?" And Jacques Vaughn appears ready. He's talked about doing the Dinwiddie Simmons pairing and, yep. and how he likes that. He appears ready to move Finney Smith to the bench and start Dinwiddie Bridges when healthy. Cam Johnson, Simmons, Claxton, which I think is really interesting. And Ben Simmons, I've made a lot of jokes on this podcast about how I'm out on the Ben Simmons Instagram offseason workout industrial complex. I'm out on all of it. I don't want to see any of it. He looked pretty good in preseason. And I've also said this. I don't care if he's a point guard. I don't even care like what what condition he's in defensively. He's going to be a good defensive player. Yeah. I don't care that he doesn't. he wants to do more than DHOs. That's all cool. The only question I have for Ben Simmons is this. Are you afraid to get fouled? Because if the answer is yes, the rest of it is noise and I don't care. And in the preseason opener, he was two for four at the line in mm-hmm. 14 minutes. Doesn't sound like much, but 14 minutes is short. And I keep reminding people, there was a 16-game stretch last season in which he was a full-time rotation player and made one free throw in mm-hmm. 16 games. Two of four, I'll take it. And you know what? If you're healthy and moving well enough... I'm like, let's see if the Simmons Claxton thing can work because the talent upside is what it is. I don't mind it. Ian Eagle, same question to you. What are you looking at? Two things that strike me uh, just to add on to the Ben Simmons situation. There seems to be a weight lifted off of him. And I don't want to get too psychoanalytical here. And this now leads into the second point without KD here, without Kyrie here. I think Ben Simmons is a little more free to do the things that he can do on the floor, even though if he was healthy, if he was really Ben Simmons, that could have worked. But I just sense that there's more collaboration now. There is a little bit more openness within this team and maybe just the way Mikel Bridges is and Cam Johnson is just their ways, the, the, their, their whole being is more welcoming. And that just might be the format in which Ben Simmons can get back to business. The second part is the obvious part. Uh, there is clearly a lack of drama. And look, when you make big name signings, uh, with that comes a lot of pressure. It comes very high expectations. It comes with a lot of fanfare. And from a play-by-play standpoint, I thought it was a blast. It was fun to call KD Kyrie Harden when he was there. It was fun. But I didn't have to coach him, and I didn't have to massage egos, and I didn't have to deal with all of that. So I can only imagine for Steve Nash, Jock Vaughn, the challenge that came with that. You're not feeling any of that. They're not nearly as talented as they were, obviously, but they like their group. And they like what they have. And there might be a spirit here of some sort that can catch on and make them a a really fun watch. Uh, How it all translates, wins and losses, that's what you're judged by. But I don't know that answer. What I do know, what I do know, Zach, is that they're going to 
play defense. Doesn't mean they're number one in the NBA. Just means that it's going to be a priority. And they're asking Mikel Bridges to take another step. They're asking Cam Johnson. They paid him for what he did and for what they think he can do. Nick Claxton believes he's a higher rated player than he's given credit for. Big money is there if Claxton comes through. Dinwoody, contract year. Then a bunch of these other guys that are trying to show that they can be in this league for an extended period beyond just this iteration, the Dennis Smiths and the Royce O'Neills and the Dorian Finney-Smiths and uh, the Lonnie Walkers and the Darius Bailey. It, it's intriguing. It really is. And how it all comes together, I think, is going to be one of the the more interesting questions in the Eastern Conference. They have, like, they're deep. Yeah. Um, I, I mentioned that starting five, you know, off the bench, you stagger Simmons, Dinwiddie, Royce O'Neal, Finney Smith, maybe Dayron Sharp is the backup center. Then you got a bunch of guys. You just mentioned half of them, Lonnie Walker, Dennis Smith, Cam Thomas. Yes. Who, remember, the, remember the Cam Thomas 40-point games? As the Nets were collapsing into smithereens, Cam Thomas was like, I got this, 40 a night. They, One deep. against the know. Clippers, in fact. Yeah, I did the was game. it not? Yeah, at Barclays Center. He just couldn't miss. Like, I mean, it was, miss. he was getting Kawhi and PG doubles and shooting over the top of them. It was moon balls that are just hitting nothing but nylon. It's ridiculous. I don't know how many wins it translates to. The, the Nets were 12 and 19, including the four-game sweep yep. by the Sixers with Mikhail Bridges. But it's just like a solid team. It's funny you mention uh, Kyrie and KD and Harden. <clears throat> we move real fast in NBA media. It is sort of just jaw agape shocking to sit back for a second and think about how quickly it failed because yep. I, the Celtics were in town last week to play the Knicks in a preseason game. And I went in and I met up with a bunch of Celtics people at their hotel, presumably talk shop, talk about the Celtics, how you feel in preseason, Porzingis, Drew Holiday, blah, blah, blah. Half the discussion I mean, I'm not kidding. Half of it was looking back at that playoff series when the mm. Nets blew the doors off the Celtics in the first round. Yep. 4-1, the Celtics got a game. Tatum had 50-something in the game. I think five of the 16 or six of the 16 games of Kyrie, Harden, Durant, whatever it was, like a third of them were against the Celtics. Those Celtics people, the way they talk about that Nets team is like, we walked out of that series. We would forget the series. We walked out of game four or whatever being like, if they just don't screw it up. Yep. We are all so royally, you know, what that we just have to sit here. Like they just like, there's just nothing we can do. And they, I'm talking people whose job is to think of ways to stop other teams. They're still talking about that team now, even though it's disintegrated as like, we just didn't even know what to do with it. And then, the hardened hamstring thing, Kyrie lands on somebody's foot. It's it's all it's all gone so fast. It's like unbelievable. I don't even have a question. I just like it's just so, it's just so. Um, last last question. This is a mandatory question for all people who have come across this person. Uh, I read that um, uh, Celtics Nets trade uh, Nets acquire Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce and some other stuff. Some some draft picks that may or may not have amounted to anything go out to Boston. Introductory press conference. You guys are driving back together. Uh, Noah, I don't know. How, how old would Noah have been at that time? Yeah, that was probably 
she said 15, 16. It was 20, yeah. 16. You're yeah, asking a lot of 16. You're asking a lot of questions of your dad in the car, breaking down how KG is going to fit, asking this. My question is much simpler, and I'll start with you, Ian. Yeah. Do you have a shareable Kevin Garnett story? I mean, shareable? I, what, what are the boundaries here on the podcast? There are no boundaries. Not even like good taste would be a boundary. Game one in Toronto that year, the Nets decided to come back after the game, just based on the playoff schedule. So play the game. I believe they started the playoffs that year. That was the the noon Eastern. It was game it was one. it was the Masai Ujiri outside F Brooklyn. Yes. yes. So at that point, and it's funny, it's not that long ago, but there there weren't separate buses. You could just end up on the same bus as a player. Now it's changed a bit. In the NBA, there's a staff bus, there's a player bus, coach bus. But back then, for whatever reason, just whatever bus you're on, that's the bus you're you're going over. I've heard every expletive known to man. I'm not easily offended in life at all. He said things on that bus after that game. I'd never heard the terminology. I still haven't heard the terminology. <laughs> there's no place for me to even look up what the words meant. And he talked the entire time from leaving the arena to customs. And then I end up next to him at customs and I'm just making conversation with him. And then we go into a whole other level where he's talking about my voice and it's, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say it. It's not worth it, but it's the M effing's voice. That's what he's, and he says it 10 times in a row. You're the mother voice. All right, I said it once. <laughs> and there's a guy on our crew, Ian Riley, who uh, at the time was doing graphics. Now he's doing tape with Yes. And he was privy to it. It was only the three of us. And then KG goes through security and he looks at me, Ian does. He's like, oh my gosh, that was unbelievable. He was just in a different dimension. And I was privileged to be there, truly. No, I ask these questions because KG, I, I, I wouldn't say he's one of my, all, I don't know if he is one of my all-time favorite players or not. Probably is. He's definitely a player that watching him was was a formative, like learning about sophisticated NBA defense experience for me. And then the more I got in the business, the more stories I heard, the more I'm like, this is the this is like the all-time most interesting guy that's he been really in the is. NBA. Did you get did you get any access to anything like that as a as a kid hanging around? You have any KG? Stuff? I mean, obviously he's going to insulate you from you know, like un pure unadulterated uncut KG. But I don't I don't know if you have any KG stories. Yeah, not a ton, not a ton. You know, it was a short lived experience with him on the Nets, and it was the back end of the career as well. So I think there was a lot going on certainly that year, even with Pierce and and Jason Terry and that team was just it was it was bizarre. But I loved going to the games and I loved being around and that introductory press conference. He was saying exactly what he just said at customs. Like that was the first thing he said. My dad introduces himself and I'm standing there off to the side and he just goes, "Man, I know that voice. That voice." He just kept saying that voice. It's 
That voice, man. you got that voice. You better hope he doesn't have you mistaken for a, another another person, another 100%. voice that has done something unfavorable. I mean, hundred percent. But I that's happened like, as well, by the way. Yeah, but yes. that did, that did. I, I, I got to say though, it's not even just the stories you hear about him. What I think is so remarkable is he is an all-time storyteller. That yes. dude is a fantastic storyteller. You get enthralled when he starts telling. You know, I go, I get go down these rabbit holes. And it's just KG storytelling or Iman Shumpert storytelling. There are a couple guys that are just off the charts good, and KG's at the top of the list. Uh, I don't want. I can't keep you guys any longer. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be nice. Uh, Ian Eagle, Noah Eagle. It's a special thing um, that you guys are going to get to do this year, being sitting and sitting at different times in the same chair. Uh, and I just think it's it's a cool. It's a cool story. I and I've gotten to know over the years at Barclays. Uh, no, I've seen you in LA here and there on my cross country trips. So it's it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun to see this unfold this year. The Nets are lucky to have you, and uh, I got nothing to say but keep keep up the great work and th- thanks for lending me some time. Yeah, means a lot, Zach. Uh, I'd I'd love to join your loser dad club at some point. That would that would be an <laughs> achievement for me. So if a, if a spot opens up, just keep me in mind. Yeah, Zach, we appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to this season. NBA season is is the best time of the year. And I'm just, I'm hoping Nets fans are going to accept that they're going to have a play-by-play guy that isn't Ian or Ryan. Like, do I need Ooh. to change my name to to Nyan? Like, do I need to do, I do need that. To figure it out? That's, that's my last question I'm going to leave everybody with. Ponder it. Get back to me. Let me know. Look, as long as you can deal with RJ and, you know, Kustak... <laughs> Like let's not pretend it's all peaches and cream with Sarah Kustak. Okay, you got you got you you got your work cut out for you. All right, thank you, Eagles. It's wonderful to see. I'll see you soon in person at the Barclays Center. All right, it's time for a James Harden interlude. This may have to be a recurring segment of the podcast. Maybe we can get a sponsor. Maybe a a Houston establishment or a facial hair care product of some kind could sponsor this i'm open i'm open for invitations look i understand why people might be tired of this um but it's a big deal james harden is a top 75 all-time player reaching a critical stage of his career in his future he plays for a team that if it could be a normal team for a half a second could be a championship contender this year the mvp of the league in his apex prime is on his team and probably looking around and thinking, why is it chaos here all the time? Uh, And on the other side of the country, the Los Angeles Clippers, the only team currently in the bidding, the trade talks for James Harden, have an absolute enormous amount at stake after trading everything. Shea Gilders Alexander, all the picks, you know the deal for Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. They've won three playoff series in four seasons. Both those guys are entering the final years of their contracts, are extension eligible. Nothing has happened uh, in terms of actual deals on that front yet. Uh, there's a new arena opening, blah, blah, blah. Uh, a couple of things have happened since we last talked about this fiasco on the Low Post podcast. Woj reported last week on NBA Countdown that the Clippers have offered the Sixers a first-round pick, a pick swap, and expiring contracts for James Harden. That would mean no Terrence Mann. He's, he's none of those things. Um, and, and my assumption, and we've already talked about this on this podcast last week, is that a pick plus a swap means obviously the Clippers are going to be extremely careful and extremely prudent, not 
trading both the unprotected future first round picks, 28 and 30, that they are eligible to trade, having just begun to extricate themselves from draft pick jail from the Kawhi Leonard, Paul George talks. They're certainly not going to do that when they know we're the only team that's currently showing interest in James Harden. Why are we going to bid against ourselves? What's interesting is that Woj then followed up with something we talked about last week on this podcast, that the Clippers are now taking that first-round pick, and it's, it, it's, it's unclear if it's an unprotected first-round pick, if it's lightly protected. I'm going to assume, I, it's the Clippers are not going to tell me exactly what they're offering. I'm going to assume that it's an unprotected 2028 first-round pick. That makes the most sense to me, that the Clippers are taking that having heard from the Sixers that, eh, that pick's kind of interesting, not that interesting, shopping it around and seeing if they can get two first-round picks for it. Maybe that would be more appetizing to the Sixers. The implication is that the Sixers have suggested to the Clippers that indeed multiple first-round picks instead of that one presumably maybe unprotected first-round pick would be of greater interest to them. I'm not sure that entirely passes the smell test for me. If I'm trying to get the thing that has the absolute most trade value, I think a Clippers unprotected 2028 first round pick is probably more valuable than two, let's say, top 10 protected first round picks that could never be better than number 11. And I know what the Sixers would say, which is, well, wait a second. This is, the, this is Los Angeles. This is the Clippers. This is Steve Ballmer who has vowed never to bottom out. This is a market that players will go to, a franchise that has successfully changed the perception of itself from a, a woe-be-gone nothing into a place where people would want to go. But the, we, we have to wager that they're going to be good in 2028, that that pick will be number 22 or something like that. Okay, I, I get that, but um, it, at least it would have a chance to be in the top 10. Look, I don't care what market you're in. If your best players are in their mid-30s and they're injury-prone, and in 2028 they're going to be even older than that, whether Harden is on the team or not, he's the same age bracket as Kawhi and PG and Russ and all that, um, and you are very, very light on young players and draft picks and all the stuff that acts as a bulwark against you falling into 2014, 15, 16, 17, Brooklyn Nets hell. Sorry, Bobby Marks. You are at risk of being bad the Lakers were bad for like five years in a row they were bad this and that's the Lakers even the Heat even the Heat who are never bad they'll never be bad they've they picked Michael Beasley number two in the draft like they've gotten bad here and there now the flip side does happen there was a Miami Heat unprotected pick ironically the Sixers had it at points and a Lakers unprotected pick I think the Sixers had that at points too from the Steve Nash trade that were the crown jewels of the NBA. And they ended up being like picks number 13, 14, 15. So it does happen. I'm just saying that one Clippers unprotected pick is at least as valuable in my opinion. And probably more than two blah top whatever protected picks. The kind of picks that Knicks have from all these teams around the league. Which are fine to have. Just not that amazing. And so here we are with this, with this standoff. Where the Clippers are saying hey, we're not going to bid against ourselves. Maybe we can get Malcolm Brogdon or somebody else who comes down the pike for less than this. Why are we gonna why are we gonna rush headlong into this? And the Sixers are saying, we're comfortable being uncomfortable. Everyone's uncomfortable. We're comfortable being uncomfortable. I love being uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable is great. And we'll we can wait till December 15th when the rest of the league 
all the free agents who signed or most of them become trade eligible, they have a wider market. Maybe by then the Clippers will be in dire straits. Maybe by then teams X, Y, and Z will be in dire straits and dying to get James Harden on their team. And that is where I keep thinking back now to our friends at the Hoop Collective, Brian Winhorst, Tim McMahon, and Tim Bontemps. They are fond of saying that actions speak. Words are words. Actions are what we should focus on. And we are now coming to a point where the actions of James Harden and his camp are going to be very, very telling. He still has not played in a preseason game. The season starts in one week. So Armageddon in terms of is he going to play? Is he not going to play? Is he going to half-ass play? What is he going to do? It's here. Soon we're going to be able to stop talking about it and speculating about it and just see what he does. And he has not played yet in the preseason. Nowhere is Joel Embiid. I don't think so. Read that into what you will. A strange thing happened last week. And only the Sixers kind of thing that I thought kind of didn't get any attention that was interesting to me on a number of levels. Michael Rubin, the head of Fanatics, former minority owner of the Philadelphia 76ers, who was massively influential when he was there, self-described brother and almost best friend to James Harden and Joel Embiid, went on Patrick Beverly's podcast, the Pat Bev podcast, which is always a good listen. And talked about the James Harden situation. Only the Sixers could have a former owner who's also like best friends with two of their current players, including the most important guy in the franchise in Joel Embiid and the disgruntled guy who wants to trade, go on the podcast of a current Sixers player and talk about the James Harden situation. Oh, this could only happen to the Philadelphia 76ers. And Michael Rubin said on that podcast, Pat Bev asked him, what would have happened in this situation if you were, if this was under your umbrella, if you were still one of the owners of the team? And Michael Rubin just simply said it wouldn't have happened. And then he went on to keep talking about this. And he said, Michael Rubin said, one of his jobs as a CEO of Fanatics is to, quote, stop dumb from happening. And I put this one in the dumb category. So it wouldn't have happened under his watch. And he puts it in the dumb category. I'm quoting. Two separate times in the podcast, he talked about how James Harden over the summer, although he didn't mention it directly, called Daryl Morey a liar twice, said he wouldn't play for him again, doubled down on those comments in his first interview since last week at Sixers camp, which we haven't talked about on this podcast. He said, again, it's like a marriage. It's broken. Trust will never be there. Didn't say Daryl Morey's name, just called him the front office. Maybe that's we should nickname Daryl Morey now, just F office, front office, Mr. Office. Um, Michael Rubin said twice, you know, he, he talked about how you, you wouldn't see James or, or someone react the way they did unless, quote, they feel like they haven't been treated properly. You wouldn't see him react in the way he was if we didn't feel he hadn't been treated appropriately. That's a different quote from the same podcast. You put all this together and it sure sounds like to me that the former minority owner of this Philadelphia 76ers, also a very close friend of James Harden, is coming out and saying, the current brass of the Philadelphia 76ers handled this poorly. And maybe if he had still been there, James Harden would have just gotten paid and this would have been over. I mentioned this all because the timing of Michael Rubin's podcast and comments and given his relationship with James Harden was certainly curious to me. And I'm just interested in how this escalates, if it escalates at all in the next week, two weeks, three weeks, as the season gets underway. I'm sure the Brooklyn Nets are sitting there with their tubs of popcorn just watching. Like, oh boy, 
let's let's get messy. Let's do this. And we'll see how messy it gets, and we'll see if any of that mess, if it happens at all. Maybe James Harden just plays. Maybe he comes back and he plays and he plays well, and that's it because of this idea that he's got to play well to to boost his trademark and get the Clippers to take a real shot at him. Maybe that's all that happens, and it's all copacetic. Maybe some other stuff happens, and, and, and we'll see what the result of that might be. But the time for actions has arrived, and... December 15th is still two months away, so we'll see what happens. But the games are going to start soon, which means we're going to learn more about the James Harden situation soon. And uh, that is my take on all of that. Uh, Facial hair, beard care products, please reach out about sponsoring. This has been the James Harden interlude on the Low Post Podcast. Let's get to Eric Nam and the Milwaukee Bucks. All right, let's bring in one of the best beat reporters working today. A beat reporter so good that he can have what I would classify as a testy exchange with the two-time MVP and, you know, maybe someone set to reclaim his throne as the best player in the world. A testy exchange in front of the entire world about what constitutes success in this line of work. And then just a few months later, they're palling up during an interview with Chris Middleton. Giannis comes in. He's filtering this guy's questions and, and making jokes. Eric name of the athletic. How are you? I'm great. Uh, as someone who lives in Wisconsin, I just spent five days in LA. Uh, it was not bad. I see why you sometimes do that. Zach. I, I, I think I get it. I love Los Angeles. I'm a, a card carrying, like I wish I could live there, but I can't. Uh, okay. So the Bucks did some stuff in the offseason, and I've talked about it a fair bit. I've talked about it in terms of how they match up for Boston as these two teams are eyeing each other, and obviously Drew Holiday is the commonality between them now. Um, but two days ago, we had the debut of Damian Lillard as a Milwaukee Buck. Giannis also played. Uh, they have two preseason games left. I'm not sure who's going to play and, and what's going to happen. And there's interesting basketball stuff happening with this team, despite the fact that Chris Middleton has not played yet. Uh, uh, John Horst tried to downplay any concern about that on our broadcast during the game, talking with Doris Burke, saying, hey, he's going to play in the preseason. He's going to be full go regular season. Stop worrying, Bucks fans. Um, Eric, whew, let's start with this. First impressions from the Dame-Giannis pairing that we finally got to see the other night. I mean, it's the fifth possession of the game. Fifth possession of the game. They finally run a, a Lillard, a Dedekumo pick and roll. I, I don't know what you do with it, Zach. I, I really don't. And, and, you know, after the game, Giannis was cracking jokes like, hey, I've never seen someone get blitzed, trapped, double teamed ever in my career other than me. Right. Like to see some one of my teammates experience that. And that was a preseason game. Right. And I, I'm just genuinely fascinated to see how scouting reports get updated for Damian Lillard, because for the last decade, it has been Get the ball out of that guy's hands and make anyone else hurt you. And as Dame joked about after the game, well, the guy I'm releasing into two is Giannis. And if that's the case, like, I, I mean, Giannis was, so, and, and again, he said this after the game, he said, I've never been this open ever in my life. And the freeze frame that I put in my picture uh, or uh, that I put in my story from Monday, from Monday morning is it's Giannis in the Draymond Green role. Four on three. Go ahead. Do what you want to do. And 
as you see it, you see those three players on the floor go, oh my God, that's Giannis. What are we going to do? And all three jump right there. Giannis has a wide open, strong side corner. He's got a wide open, weak side corner. He's got a wide open, weak side wing. That's that. I, I don't know. For, for years, the whole thing has been put extra defenders in that spot, clog the lane, build the wall, do everything humanly possible to show Giannis more bodies and when there's a Lillard, a Dedekumbo pick and roll, I don't know how there isn't a man advantage for Giannis as the role man. Because if there isn't, that means you are letting Damian Lillard come over the top of a pick without any help, and he's going to shoot it 10 out of 10 times. And he is, oh, by the way, the second best shooter in the history of basketball? Like, Is, is that too far? Like, You got Steph, and then if you're talking about off the dribble – with the accuracy, with the frequency, it might be Dame. And you can take him down a couple of notches, but let's say the fifth greatest shooter in the history of basketball. Whatever you want to do, it, he's a historically great shooter off of the dribble, and that is Giannis Tedekumbo's pick-and-roll partner now. I I truly, and the Bucks, to their credit, they didn't spam it. They, it wasn't like, all right, that's all we're going to run. <laughs> you know, high, high ball screens, that's it. They could have done that. But, you know, they still try to do things and, and get themselves used to a new offense uh, that Terry Stotts, Dame Lillard's longtime coach in Portland, is running. Like, they did try to do other things, but that possession, that that to me has to be what everyone around the league is thinking, what are we going to do? So this was the vision. This is what we all talked about as soon as the trade happened. Two of the whatever best players in the NBA – a partnership that had, should have no fit hiccups of any kind or or minimal fit hiccups yeah. of any kind. A tailor-made, unkillable, mostly unswitchable pick-and-roll combination with Giannis going into the Draymond four-on-threes. Uh, Malik Beasley in the strong side corner over here. This is a preseason game. Jay Crowder in the weak side corner over here. Or maybe Brooke Lopez is there and Jay Crowder's up on the wing. Whatever the alignment is. And... They swarm Giannis with the ball. And Giannis, I actually think this will be an interesting test of how good of a passer Giannis has become. Because I think he's kind of like a B passer for, for a guy of his stature. And even on the player talking about, the best pass was to Malik Beasley in the strong side corner. And Giannis didn't see it because he caught the ball with his back to Malik Beasley. And the very best guys at that, at that no pun intended, role... Draymond being one of them, Jokic being one of them, they have the floor mapped in their head before they catch the ball. They know Malik Beasley is there, and they pivot and turn and make that pass. Giannis didn't make that pass. He made it to the opposite corner where the defense was more prepared to rotate back. Um, but look, that's the vision, and I said the word unswitchable, and you're tempted to think of ways, okay, who? let's sit down. Who could actually switch this play? And you start to think about Boston, particularly because I just think about these two teams eyeing each other from across the room all year long. I think, okay, so Boston, you know, they could finagle things where they like put Al Horford on Brooke Lopez instead of on Giannis. Let's say Porzingis is on the bench. It's Al at the five and four perimeter players. Okay, we'll put, put Jalen Brown on Giannis, Drew Holiday on Dame. Or maybe we get real funky and we flip those matchups so we're almost like pre-switched. And we can switch between Drew and Jalen Brown. And even then, you're conceding Giannis just a massive size advantage one-on-one -on -one in the post. 
with the trade-off being you're not switching a big onto Lillard. You can't, as switchable as Al Horford is, their best Giannis defender, you can't put him on Lillard. Just can't, even in that one preseason game, he reminded you, oh, like, I can just pull up and take a three one-on-one anytime I want. Al Horford's got no shot against me one-on-one. Even that is is a difficult switch to pull off, and that's the key to it. The other key to it, and I'm wondering, you've, you've likely talked to Giannis about this, the year they won the title, he set more screens as a pick-and-roll ball handler than ever before in his career. You always hear these sort of rumblings about, you know, Giannis wants to prove he's got a bag. Giannis wants to prove he can shoot like off the dribble like Kevin Durant, like a true superstar in the league. And you mentioned the fifth possession of that game. The first two or three were like dump the ball to Giannis against Christian Wood in the left on the left block, fadeaway jumper, miss. Giannis later in the game dribbles up and takes a three. He made it, but like I already in the preseason have less tolerance for like the wasted Giannis possession. Not wasted, but if you look at the numbers, isolation efficiency, post-up efficiency, he's like 60th percentile among high volume, middle volume guys in, in those play types. It's good, but it's not great. It's one thing if he has a mismatch. It's another thing if he's just being guarded by like the guy who's supposed to be guarding him. I already am like, can we just have you set screens? You have Damian Lillard on your team. So what is that balance going to be like? Is is he ready to set like, forget 15 or 20. Is he ready to set 40 screens in a game? I mean, I think from uh, a words perspective, Giannis has said that exact thing, right? Like when we talked to him a couple days after the trade, he had just gotten off of a, off of a practice. He, comes downstairs to us in the Bucks practice facility. And he was like, I'll set 50 screens for Dame. Like, you know, I'll, whatever we need to okay. do, I'll do. So like he has said that. And, and I do think there's like a really important difference here, right? Like I think it's, it's one thing to set, you know, 50 screens or uh, however many that number got up to in that heat series in the first round in the Nets series in the second round and in the finals with against the Suns. Like, I think there's, one thing to setting a bunch of those screens and it almost always resulting in a Chris Middleton jumper. And Chris Middleton is spectacular in, in the mid range. He's, he's been a killer there his entire career. The biggest winner of this trade, by the way, I don't know if he conceives of it this way is Chris Middleton who just gets to be the third guy. Like, Oh, swing it to me on the second side for a quick pick and roll with Brooke Lopez. (laughs) Or like, I'm just wide open. It's his life as he ages and recovers from these injuries that seem yeah. to happen to him a lot is going to be so much easier. Now it's, it's like ridiculous. And we haven't even seen it yet. Yeah. No, I was joking with Chris in that interview you mentioned. And I was like, dude, you haven't seen a second chance, a second side chance in what, like a decade. And he's like, yeah, it's been a while. I haven't seen one of those in a long time. So it's going to be interesting for him. But I mean, when you're thinking about it, it's okay. So you set a screen with Chris Middleton and you're Giannis no team in their right mind is going to send two to Chris, right? Like that's just not going to happen. You're going to fight over it. You're going to switch it. You know, they're similar size players. You probably have like a bigger forward already on Chris. So like you can just switch it or you can fight over the top, whatever it is. You're not letting Giannis open with Dame. It's totally different. And, And I think that's part of this calculus, right? Like if you're thinking of players that you could have traded for, I think it needed to be someone that like Giannis would actually think, no, it makes sense that I should do this. Like, it's not going to be a better opportunity if I just get it in ISO. And if if we're going to do this, it has to be someone. And 
that list is short around the league, right? Like there's not a whole it's lot the, of players. It's the perfect guy. It's the perfect like, guy. Where it's like, oh yeah, no, I'll set screens for this guy. Damian Lillard's one of them. And and it's because of all of that that I, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of like, oh man, I, I don't know if I should do this. And uh, I think the, the interesting thing you mentioned about the passing is like, I think around the league, there's a lot of players that get really good at making the passes that they know they need to make. And like they're A plus in that role, right? Like when Giannis sees the floor as he's seen the floor for the last five years, he throws passes that outside of Jokic, not a lot of people in the league are throwing. Like right, he, he's, he can stick his hand eight feet out of bounds, one hand. Exactly. And clothesline a pass almost directly behind him to a shooter at the top of the arc. There's not dudes who can do that. And and because he was so comfortable in Bud's system and he knew where everyone was innately, right? Like Bud had made it pretty simple. Stand in the boxes. Make sure you're there. He could throw those things blind. He knew that someone was going to be there and he could throw some really incredible passes. I think you look at Bam Adebayo in Miami, right? Their DHO set, like some of the bounce passes he throws, some of the backdoors that he throws. I don't think Giannis could throw those today but if you let Giannis sit there for five years I think he could throw those and and I just think there's like a lot of that right so I agree the first thing I saw when you saw that pick and roll was oh my gosh Malik Beasy maybe the Bucks eh, Dame's better but one of the Bucks best shooters is wide open strong side corner and that's catch whip to the corner you can throw that thing blind he's there go for it and I I just thought I, I mean it it really truly felt like when Giannis caught the ball there, he said, "Wait a second, what 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 is this? Like I I have I have a man advantage, and no one's covering me right now. Like I just thought he saw it, and again, this speaks to how little time that they've had. That this trade happened two weeks before the season started. Like you're going through all this. There just haven't hasn't been a lot of reps there, and, and I think once you get to December, once you get to January, it's gonna be like holy." Like this dude knows every read now. He knows what it looks like on the man advantage. He's making all of the passes. The Bucks have figured out how to cut around it a little bit better. Like, you know, when I, I when the trade first happened, I was watching uh some Yusuf Nurkic assists, right? Like, what does he do in the role man spot? And I mean, he's getting Tybal two-hand dunks, and no one covers Tybal, like they don't care about him. And he's getting two hand dunks. And it's just like, all right, well, the Bucks are going to figure this out. And when they do, it is, I mean, it is just going to be a machine. So I agree. Like there are those questions about fit and how willing he's to set screens and how good he can make these reads and all of those things. But I think it's going to happen pretty quick. Like this dude is an insanely, you know, high processor of the game of different situations. Like if you give this dude a hundred reps of it, all of a sudden he is going to know every single thing and how it works. And oh, by the way, we haven't even gotten into the the, the idea yet that he catches with no one around him. And he said it on Sunday night. He said, you know, there's no one at my feet. There's nothing to worry about down there. Like eventually those swarming defenders, he's going to Euro step like he Euro steps dudes in transition. And it's just going to be a dunk in a dunk in a dunk in a dunk because he is going to figure this out. And it is terrifying. Like three guys trying to cover that dude with two defenders behind him and space in front of him. That is something that he just hasn't seen before. And once he figures it out, I mean, it's going to be absolutely terrifying for defenses. And, and 
the flip side is it's it's old hat for Dame, other than the fact that this <laughs> yeah. guy is now the most explosive potential lob catcher, whatever, that he's ever yep. had as a screening partner. But Dame, like, spread pick and roll high on the floor, you're going to blitz me. Like, that's just my life every day. And even yeah. in the first preseason game, you just notice these subtle things that he does that a lot of great shooting pick and roll guards, not that there's that many, but if he sees Giannis's defender coming out a little early, he'll fake toward the pick, go the other way, reject the screen, and he's in the lane. There was another where uh, I think it was Christian Wood tried to kind of half hedge it instead yep. of instead of being parallel to um, half court, and Dame just split split it and drew a foul. And this is a guy who like quietly every year <clears throat> has gotten better, even now at age 32, 33, as an off the dribble player. I think he he set a career high in free throws last year. He had like nine or ten a game. He Point just gets four crafty. six four free throw rate last year. That's the seventh best among high volume scores in the entire league. He he just gets craftier and smarter every year. A, a couple of things about the Giannis catching it open thing. I think we already saw in the first preseason game, there was one possession in the second quarter where they ran Dame Giannis. Brooke Lopez was on the right wing, not the corner, the right wing. And Anthony Davis in a preseason game was playing essentially playoff defense as yeah. as Brook Lopez's help defender. It was, it just basically ignored Brook Lopez completely, was in the middle of the paint, not at the edge of the paint, in the middle of the paint before Giannis caught the ball and basically left the Bucks no choice but to pass to Brook Lopez. Jay Crowder was in the right corner, the next guy from Brook Lopez. And we'll talk about who's going to start and how these minutes are going to get allocated. But I think there will be some teams who kind of do what the do to the Bucks. What the Bucks did to other yeah. big men, which is like Brook Lopez, we don't. Let's say you shoot thirty four percent on wing threes, whatever the number is. It, it may be higher than that. I don't have it in front of me. We're just going to give you that over and over again because we can't let this guy catch the ball, and we think, yeah, you'll maybe you'll go like one for five in in a five shot stretch. We don't think you're going to take twelve or fifteen, and maybe now he will because he's been trained by Bud to do this. But I think between Crowder, Connaughton, Lopez, whatever you want to talk about who's going to get these minutes, if you're not a proven knockdown 40% three-point shooter, I think they're just a lot of teams yeah, are just going to be like, we're just going to let you shoot. And how do you think they're going to react to that? I mean, I think it's really interesting, right? Like, I think, as you mentioned, it was pretty clear to me that teams are going to see if Brooke Lopez is on the weak side of that, Brooks guy is just going to be at the rim. Like that, that's just going to be what it is. And, and I think why I say Brooks specifically is one, obviously it's the biggest dude, right? Like whoever it is, biggest that guy's going to cover you. Yeah. But also when you're looking at how you rotate out of it uh, for as good of a shooter as Brooke Lopez is, and he has turned himself into a spectacular shooter as a seven footer, it takes a little while for that thing to get off. Right. Like he's he's going to take a, it's going to take a little while for him to get it up there and get it out. And I think what you saw from the Lakers, and it's funny you mentioned like Jans was talking about like, yeah, that kind of felt like playoff defense. Like they were, Did they he really, were really say that he was like, you know, to see someone get trapped and blitzed and the rotations off of it. Like I thought this is a preseason game. Um, but to me, that's the answer, right? Like you're going to make Brooke Lopez do that. And for the Bucks, By the way, Brooke Lopez is not to interrupt you, but Brooke Lopez's non-corner threes last six years, 33%, 36%, 31%, 31%, 26%, 36%. Yeah. I mean, that's going okay. to be the, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 100%. And that's going to be the guy. And, and I think where it gets more difficult is 
against the Lakers in the preseason, it was Jay Crowder and Brooke Lopez, two guys that are catch and shoot guys, but probably not make a play guys. Um, the Bucks will make sure that's Chris Middleton at all times. DHO time. It's Draymond what? DHO time. You're not going to guard me, kick me the ball, and this shooter comes off the screen from me, and 100%. you're toast. 100%. And, and I just, even if you don't do that, just kick it out to Chris Middleton. One, Chris Middleton gets it off immediately. Uh, Chris Middleton for his career. I mean, he started as a catch and shoot guy. This is a guy that used to shoot 45% from three on catch and shoot threes because they were unguarded. And then the whole league was like, oh, we can't do that anymore. We need to cover him. And even then, as those threes were more contested, Chris still shot it at a 40% rate. Like that's going to be what he does. And even if you don't set a screen, him making a playoff of that. If you give Chris Middleton that type of advantage, a, a really heavy closeout, that's something that he can beat. That's something, like you said, two-man game with him and Brooke Lopez. All of a sudden, you just go straight into that on that second side. Good luck. Like, Brooke Lopez is seven feet tall, all of 280 pounds, and that's just going to be really tough to deal with on the backside. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think... You could see, and again, we all we all have to talk about like hypotheticals and how this is going to work, and because we've only seen so little of it. But I thought it was pretty clear the Lakers are a team that could do that type of thing with Anthony Davis and Rome, and that's one of the. I mean, when they're really playing right, and you got Vando out there, you got the whole thing that can be a long defensive unit that can kind of make these things tough. To me, it does seem like we are going to get to a spot where other teams just leave Brook Lopez wide open and say. You know what? If you want to take 15 of those tonight, whether it's from the corner or above the break, all right, man, do it. Let, let's see what you can do. And we also think we can close out to you because it takes you a long time to get that shot off. So that is going to be the thing. And we're like, just think about this. Like we're already thinking about, okay, but th this team is going to have to stop the first action with Dame. Okay. So you blitz it, you trap it. Okay. So then the, you have it to be honest. Okay. Well, you're going to bring the help over already. Like you and me are already conceptualizing the third action off of this because it's clear that number one and number two are so insanely deadly that you can't risk it. You, you can't have that situation. You have to immediately take it to the third. And if you don't do one and you don't do two, those two guys are going to kill you. And and that is pretty hard. <laughs> like it defensively to already be thinking, all right, every possession, we got to get to the third option. Good luck. Like a defense is certainly a, a January defense isn't doing that in the playoffs. It's even hard to execute at that level, possession after possession, after possession. Like this is going to be a problem for the whole league. Another thing, I, I'm going to have my eye on this now, and I wonder if you've talked to the coaches about it. Um, several times, just in this one preseason game, when help defenders swarmed Giannis on the roll, the, the people they had been guarding, who they were no longer guarding, and, and sometimes they had to step up from the corner and the baseline to hit Giannis in the paint. Those people, Malik Beasley a couple times, Brooke Lopez once, were like, oh, we can just slide inside here for un untouched for offensive rebounding opportunities. Malik Be I've never seen Malik Beasley clash crash yeah. the offensive glass like that ever. Brooke Lopez got a couple of easy offensive rebounds. Is that something that the coaches have talked about that Adrian Griffin has talked about? First year coach Adrian Griffin, by the way, you should mention that. <laughs> like, hey, when they swarm like this, be selective about it. But like, there are some easy chances to come in and crash. Um, I don't think they've said anything about being selective, Zach. 
just go. This, this is a team that, you know, when you talk to a lot of these guys, they've been told like they've had the freedom to go out there and offensive rebound, to go and crash the glass and see what they can do. And I mean, if you think back to the 2021 run, that was how the Bucks won, right? Like it was, we're bigger than you and you're going to have to grab a rebound with PJ Tucker just all over you. Brooke Lopez all over you, Giannis all over you. Like you are going to have to earn finishing this possession. You're not, this is not something you are going to be given. This is not going to be easy. You have to earn every single one of those offensive rebounds. And, and that has been something that Adrian Griffin has talked a lot about is, you know, like we are going to be aggressive on the offensive glass and, and get in there. And I think your point about Malik Beasley is a really good one, right? Like I, I, to start that game in LA, like it was just like, Oh, Malik Beasley's on the glass again. Oh, Malik Beasley's on the glass again. Like Malik Beasley's on the glass again. Okay. Yeah, uh, sure. This is just how it's going to work. And yeah, I mean, you're again, like the cascading effects of just how insane those two guys are at the top is really just going to, I mean, it's going to be a, a bounty of riches for everyone else on the roster to, to get to take advantage of. Who's the fifth starter? Well, They've tried to keep it secret, but it's Malik Beasley. Um, that 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 is, I did not see that one coming. I mean, so I, I think when you talk to John Horace after he signed Malik Beasley this summer, I think there was a lot of excitement about that deal. Like to get him on a minimum, uh, I think they thought that was really good value, and I think it's it's interesting to see them stick with it still after the Damian Lillard trade because I think before the Lillard trade. I totally understood it, right? You know, high volume, catch and shoot, really someone, like, those are the types of players the Bucs have been looking for for years to put around Giannis. And I got Drew Holiday to protect me on defense in this universe before the Lillard trade. Now I'm going to war with that defensive backcourt. Like, that. I thought it was going to be Connaughton. Then the more I watched the preseason, I'm like, are they kind of grooming Crowder maybe to, to get tons of minutes and maybe start because of their defensive concerns? You're telling me they're just going all in offense. Let's go. I mean, I think that's what they're doing for now, right? Like I would guess these things change throughout the year, but I do think it's going to be Malik Beasley that gets the first chance. If you've talked to, uh, I've talked to Malik a lot about this. Um, he's really focused on the defensive end. This is a guy that I think coming into the draft, people are like, Ooh, this guy could be three and D he's got the potential. He's got the wingspan. He's got the athleticism, you know, the size, like he, he might be able to make this work and it hasn't worked defensively. Right. Like that, that isn't something that he's been able to figure out. Uh, But talking with Malik, he's, he's really given this a go. Like from the moment that the Bucks signed him, he's thought a lot about like, all right, I'm, I know I'm going to have to defend. That's something that, they are big on, I got to figure out how to do this. I got to really do this. And he's accepted the challenge. I'm not sure it's a challenge that he should accept, but you know, he's talked a lot about like, all right, I'm gonna have to cover the best player every night. And, you know, a shooting guard that can put up 25, 30 points. Like I have to kind of accept that role. So I think it'll be interesting to see if that stands throughout the season, because I do think putting Lillard out on the floor with him takes away a lot of the value that he probably could have brought to the team before that um, he, he would have been the guy shooting deep threes, stretching the floor, kind of opening up space for Giannis. Like it's a, a bit superfluous with Dame on the floor. Like his gravity is so extreme that you may not need this, but also if we're talking about how this team is going to win games, this is a team whose identity changed the moment they traded for Damian Lillard. Like that was 
you know, if you think about the Bucks from the last five years, yeah, Bud put together a nice offensive system, spread the floor around Giannis, and, you know, you really understood, like, oh, okay, everything's going to make sense, sense conceptually. There's going to be space around Giannis. He'll attack the rim. They'll try to kick it out to shooters, and the offense is going to be good, and it's been good. And then defensively, you know, they're going to protect the rim. They're going to make sure they're awesome on the defensive glass. They're going to just, you know, force you into the mid-range, take out through all, all that. Like, it all made sense. But when they got to the playoffs, they were going to have to win with defense. It was going to be ugly. It was going to be a grind. That's how they are going to have to do it. Now, this is an offense first team. When you trade for Damian Lillard and you put him together with Giannis Dettacumbo, you are thinking, we are going to outscore you tonight. We'll figure it out on defense. But you're not going to be able to keep up with us because even if we're not perfect defensively, even if we have you know someone at point guard and Damian Lillard that is a weaker defender, we still have Brooke Lopez and we still have Jan Stedekumbo. And those two dudes are going to be able to cover up for whatever we need to, to be good enough defensively. Maybe we're not going to be an elite defense anymore. And that might drive Adrian Griffin crazy because he is a defense coach first. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But I, I just don't think there's any way you can look at this team and not think that their identity has totally changed with this trade. Like there, There's no more grinded out on offense. That's not what you're doing. You are scoring more points than the other team, and you have to find a way to limit those points on the defensive end. If you set the over/under on number of games Malik Beasley starts this year <clears throat> at thirty-five point five, so less than half the season, I mean that assumes he's healthy. I'm going to take the under, and 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 if only for why not experiment and see what some of these other guys can bring in specific matchups, even Beauchamp, give Beauchamp a couple starts here and there for his size and versatility defensively, because what you're highlighting is a couple of things. Obviously the defensive concerns in swapping holiday for Lillard. Right. And um, the, the idea of like, well, who am I, who am I putting on Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown now is, is yeah. Giannis going to have to take more of those assignments, which is it's a storyline that's been going on for a million years. And he frankly has not been as good as you would think at those kind of perimeter ball handler shooter types. Um, it also highlights just the massive importance of Chris Middleton recovering to the point that he is an average to slightly above average wing defender, which we have not seen in a couple of years as injuries have chipped away from him. And he was that in his absolute prime. He was never, I don't think, as good of a defender as people thought. Like he, he was this sort of considered this like apex three and D scoring guy too. And I don't think he was ever that, but he, he's got to be viable in those matchups now for them. Um, and, and you've mentioned that in, in some of the pieces you're writing, like this Adrian Griffin is going to mess with this defense. This is not going to be the same, at least full time, sit back conservative Brooke Lopez is in the paint, just waiting for you to come in and try him. Uh, he's going to be up at the level of the screen now. And then even in the preseason game, you saw them like overload the strong side of the floor in ways that we, we didn't really see Bud's teams do. You've written about how they want to force some turnovers and be a little bit more aggressive. I just schematically, I'm interested. I would have been interested to see how that would work if they still had Drew Holiday. Yeah. I'm just the roadmap for this team being a top seven defense as it usually is, is really interesting to me. And very, very dependent now on two guys in Giannis and Brooke Lopez, one of whom is in his mid-30s but looks fantastic in the preseason, Brooke Lopez. I just, 
That is the more, it's almost the more interesting side of the floor to me because I don't have the roadmap yet for how this is an elite, elite, elite defensive team other than maybe those two dudes are just that good. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a big part of it, right? Like you're going to lean into that. And I mean, we've only seen, what, 18 minutes of those guys like actually out on the floor playing defense and trying to understand it. But I mean, it's it's a preseason game against the Lakers and okay, Damian is switching with Malik Beasley. Uh, Jay Crowder is switching everything one through four. Uh, so he can switch on the guards, but he can also switch on the base. Yeah, they were and hiding he- Damian Lillard on Max Chris- or, uh, Max Christie and having Jay Crowder guard D'Angelo Russell. I'm like, this is this is a lot. There's a lot of stuff going on yeah. here. No, I mean, like they were really, they were trying some stuff. Like it, you, you look at all that, you look at... Um, I mean, like there's that zone possession where it was really interesting. I, I watched that. I was like, what the hell is going on? Right? What are they it, doing? That's a yeah. zone? Yeah. No. So like they are they are willing to try some stuff. And and I do think one like you, I would have really loved to see what this vision looked like with Drew Holiday. Um, because I do think when you look at the Raptors teams uh, over, over the last five years, that's an, a defense that Adrian Griffin was running under Nick Nurse. Uh, turnovers are a priority. Uh, pressure. I, I mean, all of the things that the Bucks used to control under Mike Budenholzer, those things are gone, right? Uh, under Bud, you knew it was going to be, all right, we're never going to foul ever. We're not following. Like our foul rate will be number one in the league. If it is not, I'm going to be upset about it. You, you can't have any unnecessary fouls. Keep your hands off. We do not want that to happen at all. They were going to make sure you didn't get any shots at the rim, which is pretty easy when you had Brooke Lopez standing there and Giannis also roaming the pain. Uh, th- th- those are going to be the things. And then we're going to grab every defensive rebound. So every single year, the goal was to be, you know, number one at rim frequency, uh, holding teams down, not letting them get shots at the rim, making sure we grabbed every offen- offensive rebound or every ruined every offense rebound opportunity, and then making sure that we don't foul people. Those things are gone with Adrian Griffin. If you look at the the free throw rate in Toronto, that's always been middling, sometimes bad. You look at the turnover rate, always incredibly high. You look at the the rim frequency, it goes up and down. You look at giving up corner threes. The Raptors have given up corner threes for the last five years. That that's something that they've done. And while the Bucks did give up threes under Bud, they weren't in the corner. Like that wasn't a thing that happened. And you talk about kind of looking at it thus far this preseason. Yeah. There's a lot of help out of the corner. You know, like I'm seeing more. I mean, there's part of me that's like, Oh, I've seen this before. I've done this before. I did this six years ago when Jason Kidd was here and it was very aggressive defense. You're trying to force turnovers. You're trying to get after people and you know, the, the shot chart, so be it. Like we're, we're going to force so much. And, and I think when you look at what the Raptors did over the last five years, I think there's some real extremes, right? Like they were re- doing some crazy stuff. It's like, whatever. Part five, of the six, reason eight. they did that is they didn't have anybody like Brooke Lopez to protect Correct. the rim. 
Correct. So, so it's like, you know, five, six, eight guys, let's trap all over the place, fly over the place because, well, we don't really have a center. Uh, if you look at the sweet spot for, uh, I think that Raptors defense, you're looking at like the 1920 season, right? Like where they still had real rim protectors. They were very aggressive defensively. They're trying to force turnovers and do some of that, but they could also, you know, control the rim a little bit better. They can control the defensive glass a little bit better. For those who have blocked out the pandemic season, that's basically the championship Raptors minus Kawhi Leonard correct so you know you like you still have Marcus all in and there. Danny and Green it, like if you're thinking about who Brooke Lopez looks most like as a defensive player, like yeah it was defensive player of the year Marcus all right like that like if you're if you're trying to figure out what it is and that version of the Raptors was successful uh defensively but you do have some questions about what the Bucks do on the wing, right? Like I think one thing that gets forgotten by people, and, and I mentioned this to Chris on media day was, you know, when we were talking about, Hey, you know, everyone's role is going to change. You're not going to have the ball as much, you know, does that allow you to do more defensively? Because I think one thing that people forget during the net series, everyone remembers, you know, the, the physical battle, uh, Wanda Durant on the sideline telling PJ Tucker to stop playing football with her with her son. Like everyone remembers that, but what people don't tend to remember is Chris Middleton covered Kevin Durant for the final five minutes of those games. Like he, that was that was his matchup. He had Kevin Durant. There's and again Kevin Durant still scores. He's Kevin Durant. He's amazing. But in there there were some strips. There were some turnovers. Like Chris used to be able to do that. Not all the time, right? Like I'm not telling you he's. Uh, OG Ananobi or whatever wing destroyer defender you want to say, but Chris can defend on ball. I think, as you mentioned, he's always been an above average team defender. Like when he was really at his peak, he was not just above average. He was a spectacular team defender. He knew the scheme. He could get around getting passing lanes a little bit, but like over the years, the one-on-one defense has waned a little bit, especially with the injuries. And I, I think that's like a big part of this, right? Like can Chris Middleton, as Giannis so eloquently said, still give you 20 a night, no matter what on the offensive end. And then also bring more defensively because you're right in thinking like, all right, maybe it's not Malik Beasley, but you know, I I think back to Jay Crowder in that series against the heat last year, essentially he gets played off the floor and there's a blow by that Jimmy Butler had on Jay Crowder that felt like the death now. Like that was like, all right, Jay's not in the rotation anymore. Like he's got to get out. And it's a situation where Jimmy Butler has the ball outside the three-point line and Jay Crowder crowds him. And then in the moment where you would, uh, I wouldn't say commit a foul, but you would commit a, a playoff uh, check, let's say, uh, to use a hockey term. Uh, Jay didn't do it because that's not what the Bucs did. Like that, that wasn't how they played defense. And, and I do find myself wondering, does Jay Crowder encourage to be quote unquote physical um, on the, on the wing. And we've seen playoff defenses do this before, right? Like just keep hacking. Like they're not going to call it, like just keep doing it. Do I think Jay Crowder can be more successful in that than hands off Mike Budenholzer defense? Yeah. I think there's a chance. And especially after a full off season. So the, the answers on the wing, I don't think are obvious at the moment, but I do at least think there are candidates there that can get them to something that isn't just like a turnstile out there that that you can do something, put up a little bit of resistance and then lean on Brooke and Giannis to, to kind of clean things up. Yeah. Crowder feels like a more important player than I anticipated this, than yeah. I anticipated this year. He's also like, look, the shot is going to be up and down with him, but he's a good 
smart player to have on the weak side of a spread pick and roll system. It's a, it's a role he's very familiar with from Phoenix. Yeah. He's all flare screens, <laughs> extra passes. He knows how to do that kind of fifth guy stuff yep. in that system. Um, a lot of this team's going to be really interesting and really good. We don't, we have a long season ahead of us to analyze it and break it down and see what happens. Eric name from the athletic, just putting out great stuff every single day, knows this team inside and out can call Giannis on the phone and get, get, get quotes, whatever he wants. Eric, thank you for stopping by. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Zach.